News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's going on in the United States with their vaccination drive right now. They do still have a number of new COVID-19 cases, but the rates are going down, down, down. They are now at their uh, lowest rates, thing, rates that they haven't seen in more than 11 months, essentially. So they're optimistic there that these vaccination campaigns are you know, stemming the spread of the virus. But we're also seeing a lot of crowd-like activity there. So could that mean a potentially fourth wave? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Peter Hotez, co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital and dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez, thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. How do you feel when you see the pictures of like a sporting events, like basketball games and crowds back in arenas and people gathering? What do you feel when you see that in the United States? Well, you know, I, I think we're really talking about two different countries. Unfortunately, we've got two COVID nations. One part of the country is is doing really well in terms of vaccinations with 60 over 65 percent of the population having a single dose and over half with two doses of the vaccine fully vaccinated because we mostly have the uh, Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine here and that's good news for the northeastern part of the country in California but then in the south and here in Texas we're we're not doing well in terms of vaccination and so there's a lot of vulnerability and and that's what I worry about as we go into the summer months, because if, if you remember last year at this time, we were also at our nadir. We were also at our lowest point, And then we had that big surge in the summer in the southern states. Uh, maybe it won't be as bad this summer, but that, that's my concern that we could see another, another peak um, at, because of our low vaccination coverage in this part of the country. And what is happening in those parts of the country that is preventing people or stopping people from getting vaccinated? Well, we don't exactly know. I mean, if you look at the ranking of the of the bottom 10 states, they're all southern states, with the exception of Wyoming and Idaho. So the one common denominator is they're all deep red states, you know, really Republican strongholds. And we're seeing a lot of vac- defiance, not only against masks and social distancing, but also vaccines uh, among the political right. Uh, before it was sort of the extremist political right, and now it's become... Uh, more mainstream across the GOP, across the Republican Party. So, so I'm concerned that people are tying their political allegiance or ideology to not getting vaccinated, and that's going to be tough to combat. You've also said that the optics of having to provide incentives to people to get vaccinated, like money or the chance to win the lottery, doesn't make the U.S. look good. Why do you think that? Well, I think, you know, small trinkets here and there, you know, getting a donut at Krispy Kreme or or and, and that sort of thing. I think that's fine. That, that's fun. But, you know, when you talk about bigger incentives, $100 uh, or, or that sort of thing, I, I, you know, I understand it. I, you know, and, and we do need to vaccinate the country. So I, I don't necessarily condemn it. I, I just think the optics look awful, as I think I said once on, um, on some public uh, TV outlet that it just makes the whole nation look like a bunch of sulky adolescents here. People are clamoring for a vaccine and we have to give $100 to basically bribe people to get vaccinated. I understand it. I don't condemn it, but I'm not happy about it. 
You've also got a new book coming out that talks about preventing the next pandemic. Have we learned enough, do you think, during this COVID-19 pandemic to potentially, potentially prevent the next one? Well, maybe not necessarily prevent, but at least um, um, slow its spread and, and intervene faster. We do learn after every pandemic. If you remember SARS in 2002, 2003, that affected Toronto. We, that's when we put in place international health regulations. Then we put in place a global health security agenda after pandemic flu in, in 2009. Then after Ebola in 2014, we put in place CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, Innovation. All those things have helped for, the, for this pandemic. But I still think we have to do a lot more um, uh, af- after the events from 2020-2021, which includes expanding vaccine capacity and doing something about these anti-vaccine movements that have become so powerful and, and globalized. So where do we start then? What do you think is the most important thing we need to do to prevent the next one from happening? Well, at least to slow its um, spread, we're seeing how badly certain countries are doing in terms of vaccination. Basically, no one's getting vaccinated on the African continent, and they're not doing well in Latin America and parts of the Middle East and some of the lower-income countries of Asia. So I think expanding vaccine capacity to be able to actually make and produce vaccines in Africa, expand that capability in Latin America. I think that's an important piece to this, not to be so reliant on the multinational pharmaceutical companies, because sometimes they'll come through and sometimes they won't. And, and we, can't, we can't leave that to chance. So I think that's a big piece of it. And then I've been in, in an essay in Nature uh, two weeks ago, Nature Magazine, I, I called on the United Nations agencies to put together an interagency panel to see what the options are of doing something about this globalized anti-vaccine movement, which now even has state actors like the Russian government, uh, according to U.S. and British intelligence, with this whole systematic program of what's called weaponized health communication to destabilize democracies, really pumping up the anti-vaccine movement. So I think we have to take a harder look and stop thinking about anti-vaccine movement as just a bunch of grassroots organizations. Right. Now, Canada is, we've really ramped up our vaccination rates in the last three or four weeks. So we're on track here. Any advice about reopening here? Because we're starting to talk about that in our province in British Columbia, given what you've seen and learned in the United States, how should we approach this here? Well, you are definitely doing better over the last couple of weeks. I was on, did a couple of CBC interviews a couple of weeks ago, and I was really concerned because Canada wasn't doing well. And I'd even called on the Biden administration to to help out more and actually help provide vaccine. The good news is you are getting a much higher percentage of the population vaccinated. The bad news, it's all single dose vaccine. You're, You're not overall you know, very, if you look at the fully vaccinated population in Canada, you're, you're, it's, it's, the numbers still don't look good. And that's what you really need to do, because the single dose vaccination will only take you so far. Um, you know, in Israel, they showed single dose vaccination with Pfizer. But the Pfizer vaccine gives you about 40 to 60 percent protection. It did go up a little over time, but it's still quite incomplete. And, and it's not very hardy against a lot of the variants. So I think when you're talking about opening up Canada, that's the milestone you have to look for is really pushing heavily towards full vaccination and getting everyone those two doses. Well, we're working on it. Uh, Dr. Hotez, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks so much. This is Mornings with Simi.
So a bit of a mixed weekend for us weather-wise, but as we head into those warmer summer months, we know the nicer the weather, the greater the concern over BC's wildfire season. So what can we expect to see this summer, uh, given our weather so far this spring? Well, joining us now for more on that is Mike Flanagan, Professor of Wildland Fire at the University of Alberta. Mike, thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, my pleasure, Sammy. Now, what exactly is it that you study? I study forest fires, wildfires, vegetation fires, climate, weather, climate change. So you must be very busy in the last few years, though, given how we've seen an increase in forest fires, it seems like, all over. Yeah, um, it's, it's, there's always uh, a story about fire. It's very photogenic. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I've been busy. So what have you noticed? Are there any changes that, in, in particular, BC has demonstrated over the last five, ten years when it comes to wildfire patterns? So it's been a roller coaster. Um, I'm sure your listeners probably remember 2017, 2018, record-breaking years in terms of area burned. And then 2019, 2020, we're really quiet. So, you know, what's this year going to be like? And it's, it's really hard to say. But, you know, it's really important to understand that there are three ingredients for a wildfire to occur. And this is true for British Columbia, Alberta, or Australia, wherever you are. You, you need fuel stuff that burns, uh, grass, needles, shrubs, trees, how much, how dry it is, really important. Second, you need ignition. People or lightning are the two common causes. And third, you need that hot, dry, windy weather. You get all three and you've got a real problem. So if we have a hot, dry summer and we get ignitions, we could have a very busy uh, fire season. If it's cooler and wider or if we don't get ignitions, uh, yeah, it won't be bad. So I can't tell you what it's going to be like. It depends on the day-to-day weather. Are there things, though, that we can do, Mike, to mitigate uh, things? If we see the hot, dry weather or feel it coming, we think, okay, this is going to be bad. What are preventing wildfire strategies that we should be implementing? So I mentioned that there was two causes of lightning, uh, two causes of of fires, excuse me, uh, lightning and humans. We can't do anything about the lightning, but the humans... Uh, all those fires are preventable. So if there's a fire ban, uh, observe it. If you do have a campfire, make sure to put it out. And if it is hot and dry and, you know, there's dead grass around, watch where you park your vehicle because hot mufflers can start fires and cigarettes, of course. So just be really careful. And if you do see a fire, report it right away. And in BC, it's star 5555. And uh, for those who are interested, there's, there's a great app. Uh, BC Wildfire Service has a BC Wildfire app, and it keeps you up to date on where the fires are and what kind of uh, control stage they're at. You know, are they under control or are they out mm-hmm. of control? So there's there's lots of things that we can do, um, and preventing is the biggest one. If, if there's no fire, then there's no no problem. You study wildfires in the different provinces as well. Is there a difference province to province in how fighting wildfires is approached? Yeah, fire management is the responsibility of the landowner. So in British Columbia, it's the BC Wildfire Service. You know, so every province and territory has their own. Parks Canada has their own fire. And everyone views it a little differently. But, you know, where fire management is moving is when and where possible to allow fire to do its natural thing. I mean, our forests have grown and survive and thrive with fire. They they have... 
you know, strategies. Like There's some benefit to having the fires too, right? Yeah, it kills bugs like mountain pine beetle. and uh, Yeah, so, but of course, if a fire starts two kilometers from Kamloops, we can't allow that fire to burn. So that making that judgment, you know, it's almost like going to your you know, emergency room at your local hospital. Uh, if you have a heart attack, you go to the front of the line. If you've got a small cut, you wait. Um, a fire arrives and it's two kilometers from Prince George, you fight it. If it's not close to anything, you make an assessment. Is this going to fire going to be beneficial or detrimental? And then make a decision based on the fire weather forecast. And we have fire growth models that say how fast will that fire grow? And then make a determination, which is updated every day as we get new information. So that's, you know, that's the approach we're using today as opposed to fire is bad and you put it out at all times. And uh, you know, it's just not working, okay, to be honest. Uh, right. Guys, look at California, look at Australia. Uh, California's probably got the best fire management uh, agency in the world, and they had a record-breaking fire season last year. And uh, so um, I can tell you that in spring, most fires are human-caused all across Canada. As the season shifts to, to summer, lightning is the primary cause. So overall in BC, it's about 50-50. 50% of fires started by people. If we can stop those, or at least reduce them, then we're in good shape. Now, you talked about the different ways to like manage the fire. Are, are we good at predicting, like you said, the fire models that you upload information to every day and try to figure out what the fire is doing? Are those very accurate? Like, Can we rely on those models? So fire weather forecasts are really quite good normally, uh, out to about a week. And that's why I can't tell you what the fire season is going to be, is going to be like, because uh, you know I don't we have trouble forecasting beyond a week. So what's July and August going to be like? That, those are the busiest months for fire in British Columbia. Can so we predict how a fire moves? Yes, we can predict how a fire moves. But the, the really tricky part is forecasting where a fire starts will occur because lightning is you know hard to forecast and not every lightning strike starts a fire and people do their own thing. We do have models, but there's this room for improvement because if we know where the severe fire weather is, if we know where to expect the fires, then we can move resources so that if a fire does start and it's an unwanted fire, we can put it out while it's small. And that's the whole strategy for fire management. If the fire is small, less than a football field, and we get to it, we can put it out. If it's larger than a football field, and that you know dry fields and hot, dry, windy, now we have a problem. What about the idea of like cleaning the floor, forest floor? I know that came up in California, that doing more to kind of clean up the deadfall would make a difference. Does that help? So um, back to the three ingredients, fuel. So, you know, the forest is vast, okay? We're, we're not going to rake the entire forest of British Columbia. But what people can do and do is manage fuels around the community. You know, conifers are very flammable. So right at the edge of the community or on your property, you don't want combustible material close to your house. There's a program called Fire Smart Canada. It has seven principles to help communities and homeowners better protect themselves against fire. And one of those is reducing the amount of flammable fuel around your home, around your community, and this will help. It doesn't mean that there won't be a fire. It just means it should be at lower intensity that fire management should be able to put up. Right. So if you live in an area of the province, let's say, that is prone to forest fires, what are the things that you can do around your yard or you should be thinking about doing? Well, you know, most, a lot of it's common sense. Uh, don't stack your firewood against your house or anything flammable. Watch out for shrubs, um, especially 
uh, needle-based shrubs, uh, even things like you know mulch and things like that, uh, or wood chips, don't have them right up against your house. Uh, also, many of the homes burn down because of burning embers. And if you've seen video from you know the fires in 2017, 2018 BC, you see these walls of flames and this rain of burning embers. That's how most homes are lost, is do that rain of burning embers. So keep your eaves troughs clean, because that's where the embers fall on. And, you know, so there's just keep flammable material away from the house. Right. So every year must be fascinating for you, right? Because there's, it feels like it's always different. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. Uh, you know, some years it's Australia. The poor California seems to be almost every year now. And, uh, you know, this is just because our weather is variable. And, uh, you know, in BC, you average 350,000 hectares every year. That's, you know, more than 30 times the size of the area of Vancouver. So a lot of territory burns, but some years it's really quiet. Some years it's really busy. So it's like the weather. It's always changing. We'll see what happens. All right, Mike, thanks so much for teaching us about that today. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. Have a good day. That's Mike Flanagan, a professor with the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta who studies wildland fire there. Fascinating topic. And he's right, it is different every year. We've had a couple of quiet years, relatively speaking, uh, when it comes to wildfires in our province. Fingers crossed this year stays the same. But in California already, they're talking about drought that has been the last couple of months, their situation there. Um, So I'm not sure it's going to be that quiet down there, but we can keep our fingers crossed. This is Mornings with Simi. It's not just the Lower Mainland anymore. This gang conflict that has seen, seems like, ever more brazen shootings and murders all over the Lower Mainland has now, it sounds like, spilled out of our area. We're talking about shootings in Nanaimo. Uh, And now over the weekend, police in Calgary investigating a targeted fatal shooting of their own that has links to us here in the Lower Mainland. For more on all of this, we're joined now by Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. So now what happened in Calgary here? How is that connected to what we have seen? Well, it's uh, absolutely devastating. Uh, The brother of the young man killed at Market Crossing on May 13th was gunned down in Calgary, in the alley behind a halfway house where he was residing while finishing up a sentence for drug trafficking. So his name is Gurkirt Kalkat, uh, brother of Jazkirt Kalkat, known as Gary, you know, and uh, it's believed to be linked uh, to, to what's been going on here on the Lower Mainland. You know, he would be aligned with the Brothers Keepers, as was his brother, and this family has now you know, received news uh, about a second death of a child within 10 days. Oh, that is, for that family, that would be devastating for them. What about this Nanaimo situation? Well, the Nanaimo situation, we have seen violence in other parts of B.C. related to the conflict or the gangs operating on the Lower Mainland before. Not as new, but obviously very, very shocking for the people of Nanaimo. Uh, We had uh, a young man uh, who's linked to the Kang gang or the Red Scorpions. They're kind of aligned. Uh, His name is uh, Yazan Khan. He was gunned down Thursday very similar to some of the shootings we've seen on the Lower Mainland, you know, busy shopping plaza off the highway, and uh, the shooters then raced away. What is different is that uh, the suspects were caught, held for 24 hours, so they have been identified. They had to be released because at that point in time there wasn't enough evidence to get charge approval. 
but obviously police over there are working very hard to sort of put all the pieces together. And the main thing is they already have suspects identified, which is very different from other uh, murders that we've seen in recent months. So hopefully we'll see some charges laid in that Nanaimo case very soon. Yeah, let's talk about how that's gone. Your piece, by the way, over the weekend, the Vancouver Sun, was so fascinating about the kinds of locations police are investigating and, and the, all that work behind the scenes. It feels like that we don't often get to see. Yes, and I think, you know, this is so startling for the general public that has no connection or nobody that they know involved in this gang conflict. They don't understand, well, what's going on? You know, are there leaks of information that are leading uh, the killers to find the person that they're targeting? Because, you know, how would they know they're at this busy shopping mall? So I was trying to sort of give people that context that, unfortunately, it's not a mystery when you know how these hits are being arranged, how, you know, the the killers are often very inexperienced right now, and we've seen, you know, if you think back to uh, the murder, it seems so long ago now, but the murder of Bikram Deep Randawa, he was the correctional officer. We still think it might be a case of mistaken identity, and there was this, like, crazy video by a passerby of, you know, the hitman dressed all in black kind of jumping back and forth, you know, over planters in the parking lot looking for the getaway car. You know, this was not like a, a very sophisticated or a very experienced hit person, if you will. Uh, so, you know, I was trying with that piece, which we called the anatomy of a hit, sort of show how this is being done and show that many of the people being recruited to actually go kill someone are very young, very inexperienced in trying to impress someone bigger, usually, in gangland. And you talked about how that's changed, right? About even the hiring of a hit person has changed over the years. Yes, for sure. You know, the uh, police and the experts that I spoke to said that, you know, previously uh, it was very rare to have a professional hitman come into town and, and kill someone. It was very expensive. Sometimes you know, the more traditional organized crime groups that are sort of higher echelon would have their own in-house people doing this. But now, unfortunately, uh, through drug lines, you know, junior workers on drug lines, they find someone willing to do this, both for money, but also to ingratiate themselves and make a name for themselves. So you have, you know, sometimes people that are still teens that are willing to do this. And they're sort of learning from what they're seeing or what they're hearing, right, which is why you see so much similarity in the pattern of these, oh, I'm all dressed in black, you know, I need a gun, you know, we'll find him here. And they have different people, not the the hitman, who will track vehicles, right? And sometimes they're actually putting trackers, like GPS trackers on vehicles, and then they will use kind of Wi-Fi, public Wi-Fi spots to monitor that vehicle and where it's going, which is how they can find out you know, when someone goes to the gym, you know, right. we had a murder April 20th of a fellow right outside of a gym in Langley, right? So they track people's uh, patterns and sometimes they physically track the car. So they know they're on their way to the mall because they are following them. Right. And you also pointed out that, you know, people are accepting this job for cheaper. It seems like they've kind of cheaped out on who they're getting to do these things. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, and sometimes it might be someone who's willing to do it for nothing because they are part of a personal beef or grudge against someone else. Uh, you know, I, unfortunately, these Calcat brothers, particularly Jazz, uh, the one who was shot uh, in Burnaby, 
um, you know, they're deeply involved in the conflict. Like his brother's been in prison for a couple of years, so not as much, obviously, right? So, right. Um, you know, Jazz was believed to have some knowledge of uh, the murder of their rival, Carmen Graywell, at the airport a few days before, and then lo and behold, he ends up dead. So it's just this terrible tit-for-tat. I don't know how to break the cycle. I'm sure that's something yeah. that is driving everyone a little bit uh, crazy on the lower mainland that, you know, it's a lot of frustration and devastating for the families who are getting this news that someone who's still relatively young in their early to mid-20s has just been gunned down. What what do you think the reaction has been like to the posters and the pictures that police have been putting out there? It's definitely controversial. You know, I, I mean, police don't do this very often, and I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, but I'm hearing, I just got a fairly hostile email from someone, uh, you know, very critical of the posters, who appears to know people on it. Also thought there was some racial prejudice, which we've heard, because there was, like, only one white person on the poster. Uh, you know, but the flip side of that is um, police really believe that the people who they've identified as being involved and being targeted, who aren't cooperating in any investigation, uh, that, the, that the public has a right to know what they look like so that they can stay safe. So on one hand, you see the public, some in the public, happy that these posters are being released, you know, but others uh, feel like maybe their whole community is being targeted and they don't think it's fair. Do you think the police are making any inroads with their investigations at this point? I do, actually, you know, some more than others. But I do think that we'll start to see charges. And, and this is the other thing, you know, again, suspects were, were arrested in the Nanaimo case, but then they were released. So then everyone's attacking the police. Why are they released? You know, people don't often sort of get a chance to sort of look at how an investigation is conducted or what evidence is needed, you know, to have a case go to trial and be successful, right? Those of us who've sat in courtrooms over decades know that, you know, there's a very methodical process to gathering the evidence, putting enough together to get Crown's charge approval. It's the Crown prosecutors lay charges in B.C., not the police. Mm -hmm. You know, so they have to have, like, all their I's dotted and T's crossed before those charges get laid. However, I do think we'll start to see charges in some of these murder cases. You talked in your article about one case where BC's Civil Forfeiture Tribunal went after a property. And I know that's something that the provincial government, you know, in years past has used to try to kind of get past it, some get at some of these people involved in the gang situation. Do you think that works? Well, I think it's one tool for sure. Um, you know, in some cases... Uh, they're going after fairly significant people in organized crime and their assets. Um, so definitely they're hurting them where it counts in their pocketbook. Uh, so I, I do think it's one tool, but obviously people would rather see people charged and yeah. go to prison if, in fact, they're involved in violent crime, especially a murder. So true. Kim, thanks so much for your time this morning. Anytime to me. Have a good day. That's Kim Bolin from the Vancouver Sun, the crime reporter. Check out her latest piece in the Sun this morning. I can't recommend it enough because she really just talks about all the behind the scenes investigations and things that police have been uncovering, uh, you know, especially in light of the latest 
shootings. And we've seen now that the lower mainland gang war is seeping over into other communities. We've had the shooting in Nanaimo over the weekend, one in Calgary, where the victim of that shooting was the brother of a shooting that happened here, the one that happened out in front of the Cactus Club at Market uh, Market Crossing, as Kim was pointing out. So what is going on out there? Are things slowing down? It certainly doesn't sound like it, um, but we'll have more for you, of course. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, it's an important week here in our province. It is actually Paramedic Services Week. It's right across Canada. This is the time to honour and recognise the work of ambulance paramedics. Every year, right here in our province, there are approximately half a million calls to 911 alone that require ambulance dispatch. And, you know, people try to show their support and their love for paramedics and the work that they do. But they are feeling the concern, the pain right now, the overstaffing, the shortages, all of that. So let's give a little shout out to how important paramedics are. Joining us now is Troy Clifford, the president of Ambulance Paramedics of BC. Troy, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Sammy, for having me on this morning. Now, when we've talked like in recent months about paramedics, a lot of it has to do with kind of the, the shortages. Are you still seeing that, the concern over the length of having to wait for calls? Yeah, absolutely. The last couple of weeks and, uh, have been really, really highlighted how uh, really, you know, uh, sad and, and uh, desperate we've become. I mean, uh, you know, we've seen the overdose uh, numbers last week and more records, uh, uh, unfortunately. But uh, this weekend, we're seeing the same numbers. You know, and it's, it's May Long weekend is traditionally the uh, May Long weekend is traditionally uh, the opening up of for summer and people are looking forward to uh, summer and you know we've been uh, it hasn't been a traditional long weekend for all the reasons that we know with the PHO guidelines and that and I think for the most part I'm hearing from paramedics and dispatchers on the street that uh, people are adhering to the rules and perhaps the enforcement stuff is helping but uh, I think if we get through this weekend as as we've seen that uh, we aren't seeing the same amount of calls this weekend that we traditionally see with the outdoors and the activity which is good but we're still seeing the pressures that we have with shortages of staffing and out of service. So, yeah. uh, unfortunately. What has that been like trying to deal with that? Have there been a lot of paramedics reaching out for help? Absolutely. Uh, we're seeing, you know, incredible numbers of paramedics, uh, you know, seeking assistance uh, through our processes for um, fatigue, mental health, wellness, uh, injuries. Um, and that's definitely a toll of what we've been experiencing over the last couple of years, uh, you know, with the, the pressures under COVID. Not, you know, and not to highlight that we're any different than a lot of people because we're all facing the challenges with COVID. But uh, the extra workload and pressures are definitely having impacts on paramedics and dispatchers. You know, and then the overdose crisis, which we're, we've talked about before, is five years old and it's getting worse. We've seen more records last week and over 90 calls a day that uh, across the province we're responding to. And then the staffing and workload that this weekend, we've seen incredible numbers again. Um, and, you know, paramedics just are really uh, at wit's end and our dispatchers are working short and it's definitely impacting. We've seen some calls last week where, you know, people were waiting a couple hours for, you know, people. I was on another show there and talking about a lady in Kitsilano that waited over two hours or was told she was going to wait over two hours and drove her husband in for a, for a cardiac event, which is absolutely oh, unacceptable. Uh, it is unacceptable. And I know one of the things that we're focusing on this week is the paramedic as educator. Like how many different levels, skill levels do paramedics need to deal with people? Yeah, and I think that's really what the call today chat with you about is, uh, you know, the highlighting what we do do and what we can do. And, you know, it's been 
we want to focus on the positive side of uh, how proud we are of our service and that. And we have primarily six levels of care. You know, your primary entry level, the emergency medical responder, then your primary care paramedic. Um, and then we have what's called a community paramedic, which provides local medical services in, in conjunction with our scope of practice in, in mostly rural and remote, remote communities across BC. And then our advanced care paramedics um, in medical, they focus on medical and cardiac resuscitation and, and uh, more advanced levels. And then critical care, which is the highest level of specialized care that, uh, in the province, which really is an ICU and an ambulance or an airplane or a helicopter that responds to either scenes or injured facilities. And uh, that's a very valuable team in our, uh, in, our, in, our, in our service, as well as the critical care infant transport team that uh, deals with uh, medical uh, children and uh, medical calls involving infants and newborns and premature as well as high-risk uh, obstetrics and maternity. And then we have what's called a paramedic specialist, which is a dual role that helps mitigate calls in our, our communication dispatch centers and supports on the street, supports uh, advanced calls and uh, technical support for high-risk situations and complex patient events. So those are our really uh, high-level uh, groups, you know, so we have our medical and then we have our uh, medical dispatchers, emergency medical dispatchers and call takers, which run our communication centers and uh, dispatch, respond and, uh, and dispatch ambulances to every medical event that you mentioned, the 500,000 uh, calls that we right. do over a year. So then, does, Troy, does every paramedic need that high level of training and do you specialize? And then how do you juggle that depending on what the call is? Yeah, so it's a tiered of... It's, tiered calls in BC. So every call gets at a minimum uh, the, the primary care or emergency medical responder. And then in specific areas, depending on the, the criteria that's assessed on the call, so a higher criteria like a RED or a, um, a critical intervention call for a shortness of breath, cardiac events, cardiac arrest, trauma, those sorts of serious calls, if you wish, um, then uh, advanced care paramedics would be tiered in or the critical care paramedics would be tiered in on those calls and in a layered response to assist uh, with those critical calls. So it's a, it's a very integrated system that uh, is based on the evidence provided for when the call's taken by right. emergency dispatchers. Yeah. That's the thing I think that's really important for people to understand. So much of the response that they get uh, in an emergency situation has to do with what they tell the people on the phone. Yeah, and it's you know, and that's what these professionals in our communications center, our dispatchers, are trained to do: calm people down and and guide them through uh, scripted instructions to provide uh, medical instructions prior to the ambulance arriving. So, in cardiac arrest incident, so we teach people how to do CPR over the phone to to intervene right away, or provide critical interventions in trauma or you know bleeding, all those major uh, sort of fair state areas that we would intervene with um, to provide help to the bystander or the caller while they wait for uh, paramedics to arrive or first responders. Are we still kind of short-staffed when it comes to paramedics in this province? Oh, absolutely. We're seeing every shift around the province, about 20 to 25% of our ambulances are unstaffed because of um, uh, resources. We don't have paramedics to staff. It's not that we don't have the ambulances. We just don't have paramedics available. And we have a recruitment and retention issue as well as... uh, um, shortages uh, do be because of a, it's a complicated situation, right. but but uh, we definitely are seeing uh, incredible shortages, and that's unfortunately affecting our ability to respond and uh, delays in responses, which is really 
you know, when we talk about a positive week this week, it's really affecting, um, it's not what we do and not what we're about. And it's really causing a lot of uh, operational stressors to paramedics, which, you know, it's ironic that the calls we do are less stressful than some of the operational impacts of uh, out of service right. and that sort of stuff. I also remember that one of the key issues was like like freeing up the time for paramedics too, right? Not having to spend so much time, for instance, in a hospital ER waiting to discharge a patient and hand them over. Have have those situations improved? In some areas, we've seen some really uh, good improvements with hospital delays, as we call them, or you know, in the handover situations. For instance, you know, Surrey Memorial's really become efficient uh, at moving paramedic through. They move a lot of patients through that emergency. It's probably one of our model. Uh, integrated systems but uh, we are seeing them around the province you know communities in the interior health some of the bigger hospitals you know in the okanagan valley are seeing incredible delays the fraser valley you know out uh, some of the smaller hospitals in the fraser district we're still seeing those and those have impacts if you know if ambulances can't be responding to the calls even when we're short-staffed then that's going to enhance the workloads on other paramedics that are able to respond but it's also going to delay calls so that is still a big component of our um our challenges, if you wish. Well, Troy, listen, thanks so much for joining us today. And we want to make sure that we had the chance to talk about that because it is Paramedic Services Week. So thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me on. And I just, you know, I appreciate all the support from the media and the public. Just, uh, you know, and if you have a chance this week, just give a wave or say thanks to a paramedic. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do. And, uh, and we appreciate you highlighting, uh, you know, the value of the service. We will do that for sure. Thanks, Troy. Thank you. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. So there's a new book out by a UBC architecture professor, and it's about the housing distortions that happen when a city's housing stock is designed to attract the global rich. How do they define the global rich? Those who own an average of three homes each for their just for their personal use. The book is called Icebergs, Zombies, and the Ultra-Thin Architecture and Capitalism. Our Raji Sohal had a chance to talk to the author. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Yeah, this book's been, uh, it's just come out, but it's making the rounds. It's being written up uh, in all the major newspapers. And Matthew Souls, uh, the author of the book, he, he lives in Vancouver, um, and he says that cities and their architecture physically change, the culture changes when these cities become a magnet for billionaires. You know, I think Vancouver is a city that is is famous for um, creating uh, "quote unquote" livable neighborhoods. I mean, it's held up worldwide in planning circles for its success in in creating walkable, usable, safe, high density neighborhoods. And and uh, Vancouver deserves a lot of congratulations for the success that it has had. As it turns out, that model of Vancouverism, that model of livability works very, very well with the logics of internationalized, globalized financial capital. And uh, so, so the livable, successful model of Vancouver is very attractive to, um, to investors. So the things that we love about our city, the fact that it is livable, walkable, scenic, all of that is what attracts more people. It's almost like a catch-22, isn't it? Yeah. And also now what we've seen in the last uh, several years is that our landscape is changing drastically to make homes um, and residential homes in towers, especially like super luxury ones um, for the billionaires. They're not for uh, necessarily right. um, people here. Um, and Prof Souls, he 
comes up with this concept of the zombie neighborhood, you know, the, the empty homes that we've heard yes. so much about, the houses that aren't homes, they're not lived in. I have an embarrassing uh, story about how I learned about the zombie houses, but first I'll get his uh, definition of them. You know, the neighborhoods where there's this owned but sparsely used residential stock are, are just less vital and less exciting and less socially rich um, than they can be. So they're this kind of undead zombie state. So, Simi, when I was going into labor with my second child, I was in the neighborhood of Shaughnessy, and I don't really hang out in Shaughnessy much ever. And uh, I went into labor, and I thought, okay, this is still going to be a while. I I need to refill my water bottle. There was nowhere for me to refill my water bottle as I was going on this walk. And so I knocked on a door of a house, and a cleaner came to the door and said, nobody lives here. And I thought, okay. Um, And I went next door to that house. Again, another zombie house and then another. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So here I was, this pregnant woman in labor, uh, not able to get her water bottle filled because it was a neighborhood of zombie houses. And then I kind of looked around me at the whole block and I was like, huh, there's no vitality here. You know, you're missing that social dynamic. There were no right. um, kids playing outside. There were no neighbors talking to each other. And it, it was kind of eerie because it's still like a gorgeous neighborhood. It's obviously really really beautiful. And another term that Prof. Souls uh, uses to shed light on the attraction of extreme wealth is iceberg mansions or glaciers. So these are houses that due to building height rules, um, and these are really popular in, in London, they see their value increased by adding new levels, but deeper below ground. And oh. we we do see that a little bit in West Van. There's one in Dunderave that has like, you know, deep levels of concrete underground to store a personal car collection. Oh, that must be nice. I'm being sarcastic. Must be nice. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic on that one. Prof, Prof Souls, uh, he says, though, careful, don't blame foreign investment on any one region of the world. The global rich includes the rich from Canada. You know, like, I mean, and it includes, it's very important, like, because I think it's this conversation, this aspect of the conversation slips sometimes too easily and depressingly into a a, a racialized conversation in a negative way that actually detracts from the realities of the situation. So, you know, when I think of global rich in a city like Vancouver, I really think of it, well, this includes rich folks from Toronto. This includes rich folks from the United States. It includes rich folks from Europe and other places in the world. So this, the, too easily we st- slips into a kind of demonization of China, and I don't think that that's fair, and, and I don't think it's accurate. And Professor Matthew Soles says that Vancouver is building housing for the few global rich, marketing it abroad and in Toronto instead of to locals. Our contributor, Raji Solhol, is back with us. Now, Raji, I've seen this happen firsthand even recently. Yeah, where are you seeing it crop up? Well, we went to a pre-sale condo development um, opening that we Mm. were interested in perhaps downsizing from our house into this condo building. And we just couldn't compete once the person told us, the realtor told us that they were also marketing these suites abroad. And the choice suites, like the best ones, had already been spoken for. And we were yeah. in there on like the the preview weekend, not even the opening weekend. We were in there for the preview weekend. And I had been checking this building because it was in my neighborhood and I had been on their wait list. I had been registering, all that kind of stuff. Still couldn't compete. 
Yeah, I don't know if you visited an actual showroom, but I've heard that yeah. uh, these luxury buildings are making the the showrooms that are local here in Vancouver just kind of for cosmetic reasons because the major showrooms actually exist abroad. Yeah, where they, they're being marketed. They so. made no bones about that that they were marketing these abroad quite heavily, and they had reserved a whole bunch of suites for that. Yeah. So, so what happens when our city uh, and our big buildings are being geared towards these global rich? It's it's changing the way that our city actually looks, and you know these pencil thin towers with like concierges, and and now some of them have Peloton rooms. I'm hearing people don't have to leave their buildings, and so that's not just a physical building thing. That's like also exacerbating social inequality. And Prof. Souls, uh, who wrote the book we're talking about, he says that the livability of Vancouver is attracting that global money. But on the flip side, it actually makes the city a little bit less livable for the rest of us. We prize easy access to uh, green space like sea, and, and recreational space like the seawall or parks and an urban form that ensures access to views of nature, right? Like the view cones, the, the thin, slender residential towers are very much rationalized as a way to help views exist between them, um, as opposed to different shapes of buildings. So we prize a version of livability that, that favors urban behavior that is recreational and kind of leisure, leisure oriented. And I'd say that a different version of that is a type of urban um, environment that encourages um, kind of cultural activities, um, activities of debate and um, challenges. So between different human beings, so public squares where where all different types of humans come together in an urban, non recreational way, where they uh, you know debate, play guitar, you know. That's so interesting because given all that, some of the hottest neighborhoods in Vancouver, though, in terms of real estate and buying them are are more of the more livable neighborhoods where there are people doing those things. Yeah. And people are going to do those things when you have, like he said, public squares, when you're going to have um, just more openness outside uh, to encourage that kind of congregating. You see it in other cities a lot, right? Like spontaneous performance. Um, you know, I lived in Montreal for a, a long time and there it's pretty typical that you will just see people spontaneously dance in public together or do theater or like bring out their instruments and play music. That sounds like weirdly utopic um, for Vancouver, but yeah, again, it's it happens around the city and in other cities, it happens around the world. And like I noticed, for example, that when I was in Montreal, it would be very normal for me that if I had a to-go cup for, of coffee, I would sit outside on some church steps, for example, or I would sit on like a stoop in Vancouver, get that to-go cup, and I am on the go. I'm walking somewhere. And same thing with like, um, you know, here, he said, we favor recreational space. So if we're outside together with our friends, we might be like playing tennis, we might be playing, you know, ping pong in the park, but people elsewhere might play chess, where they actually talk and exchange ideas. And so it's kind of like the more insular a neighborhood seems, say, like the heart of residential downtown Vancouver, the more you also get that kind of not in my backyard attitude. Right. And Vancouver people when, are, are definitely on their way somewhere always though, right? Like whether it's oh, yes. going for a run or <laughs> going hiking, like they are going somewhere. 
they're going somewhere to meet up with people and do something, you know, other than just get together and talk and talk it out. Um, When I lived in Vancouver's West End, on the other hand, I saw a lot of different age groups mingling. I saw diversity of demographics. I saw people of different backgrounds. It's a socially dynamic neighborhood. And Prof. Souls talks about how do you like, how do you try to maintain that? How do you encourage that with buildings? Here's Prof. Souls again. I think there are lots of values we could want in a city that aren't represented in how Vancouver constructs livability. So what about what about excitement and stimulation and being challenged by different kind of modes of being? Those aren't things that we hold up actually in livability. So in Vancouver, unlike some places in the world. Um, so it's no accident, in my opinion, that, um, that it's uh, proven to be a very popular place for investment. It's almost like become the ethos here now, hasn't it? Oh, totally. Uh, It's like oxygen. And he made the point that, you know, he doesn't think people are sitting in City Hall going, hey, how do we make it more livable for just the billionaires? Um, But we like have all since the 90s and the boom of the condo industry um, and making these kind of like standardized units uh, that uh, get marketed globally, we've kind of all just sort of accepted it. And something does get lost when that's the orientation, right, of how we build out a city. So I'm so curious about where Vancouver is headed. I would love to see developers challenge that idea and instead make like different looking buildings, interesting looking buildings. We'll see about that. There are some interesting developments coming up, including what the Squamish Nation has going on right at the end of the Burrard Street Bridge there. So it'll be fascinating to see that for sure. Raji, thank you. Thanks so much to me.